This is the third Sunday of Epiphany, and we begin to we continue the shifting of gears in the Sundays after Epiphany from a reflection on the person of Christ, who is Jesus, what does the incarnation mean, to the work of Christ. So we continue reading in Matthew's Gospel about the beginnings of his uh, public ministry. But there are two other readings that are important. The first one from Isaiah uh, is quoted in Matthew's Gospel today, or it is in part. And we have a reading from Paul, who is opening now his letter to the first letter to the Corinthians and beginning to get into the real nitty-gritty of um, conflict in the church. So I want to say some things uh, about that and what's involved and then talk about Matthew's gospel briefly. This is one of the texts in Isaiah that early Christians used to say uh, it is predictive of the coming of Jesus And not only is it referred to a specific historical circumstance during the time of the prophet Isaiah, it's now pointing to how that is definitively resolved in the person of Jesus Christ, the unique focus of the divine presence. And Isaiah is speaking about here something that is part of his prophetic witness in the Hebrew Bible. And that is that God's saving work, God's redeeming work, God's presence is not just for the people of the covenant, but the result of faithfulness to that covenant by God, principally, we now see that God's saving embrace is available to everyone. So outside of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles... The nations. And this is who this message is for as well. And Christians will take that up, particularly Gentile Christians, and they're going to read that and say, uh, this is predictive of the coming of Jesus, who we understand and believe his message has universal significance and is for everyone, not just a special group of people. That we believe that uh, God's illuminative processes are at work in the world. And those are understood in two ways. Every Easter, I preach about the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy. And I speak about uh, the first of the fourfold shape, and that is the light of Christ, the presence of the light of Christ, God's illuminative process symbolized in Eastertide by the Paschal candle. And early Christians understood the light of Christ first of all, to be symbolic of the pillar of fire that was leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. So it was showing them the way, where to go, how to follow. And this light is also internal. It is given to Christian people sacramentally at their baptism. In fact, one of the early words used for baptism in Greek was photismus, which means enlightenment. And so God's illuminative processes are at work in each of us through the Spirit. And so we in some way have an idea of uh, now seeing more clearly uh, um, how we should behave, how this affects our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. 
And that process produces a clarity which also helps us in our relational life and helps us to see more clearly what our vocations are, how we live, what we do, and how can we sharpen those things to pursue. You know, the word in Greek that's used for ethics, Aristotle would have used, is arete, which means excellence. How do we pursue excellence in everything that we do? And that's tinctured with a kind of ethical and moral uh, overlay. But it also has to do with how we, per we see that excellence played out in everything that we do. So we move from Isaiah to 1 Corinthians. And Paul is continuing in chapter 1, speaking to the Corinthian congregation, writing to them. And he tells the reader that, he, that uh, Chloe's people have been in touch with him. Remember when you read Paul's letters, you have to understand it's like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You don't know what was said on the other end. So Chloe's people shows us also that we see emerging from the jump in, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s. Uh, we begin to see now uh, women's leadership in, in the common life of the church. And Chloe's people have written and said that there is division. There is, as my grandmother used to say, tension in the Corinthian church. Members quarreling with one another. And the word in the original that's used for that suggests attitudinal divisions, interpersonal bickering, rather than doctrinal or ideological schisms. It's not that they're not really serious, but what we're talking about is some pretty quotidian uh, you know, difficulty and strife. This word is often associated with jealousy, petty strife. It is difficult to know the exact nature of these internal differences, but it seems to be various kinds of personal loyalties with one group uh, and another group. And we might ask the question, he names four. I uh, belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, which is Peter, or I belong to Christ. So you might ask yourself, well, what's wrong with belonging to Christ? So I was wondering that myself, and I flew when I wrote my sermon to a commentary. You have to be careful about this. I was one time, uh, in, when I was in seminary, I was in class, and we were uh, talking about a particular passage in uh, some biblical text, and some of us all had a copy of a certain commentary with us, and we went to the commentary, and Father Edward said, you know, you'll find that if you pick up the Bible and read it, it may shed a lot of light on the commentaries. <laughs> and that's true. But sometimes you need a little help. And this commentary said, the gist of Paul's remarks suggests that all four groups are being reprimanded for false loyalties or identifying their loyalties wrongly. Those claiming to belong to Christ are perhaps being censured because they are as divisive and exclusive in their claims as the rest, in which case they would be party to dismembering the body of Christ. Even the right title or the right cliché is meaningless 
if it becomes the occasion for arrogant and exclusive claims. And in our public life and discourse today, that is a very common practice on all sides of the political spectrum. Those who are conservative on the right and those who are liberal on the left uh, are prone to this kind of thing. One of the things that Anglicans have believed uh, from the beginning, and most people, we talked about this at the sermon discussion group, the, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, is not a Protestant church. What Henry VIII did was to say, I'm removing all foreign influence in the realm of England and going back to the Statute of Premunire in 1383 and saying, this is the church now in England, the Catholic Church in England. So bear that in mind. But one, and one of the things that they understood was difficult is that we should labor at all costs, even in our own country and in our own location, to avoid splitting, to avoid breaking apart. And it's been a tendency in the churches of the Reformation uh, to be more cavalier about that than they need to be, and that virus has infected the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church over the last 25 years. This doesn't absolutely relate to what I'm going to be talking about, but I want to read it because it's so good. Henry Chadwick uh, wrote a famous book called The Early Church. He's forgot, he forgot more about the early church than most people know. And he was the, when I met him years ago, he was the dean of Christ Church in Oxford. And he wrote an, uh, an essay in this little book called Theology and Anglicanism. And I think it's the best article in, in this book. It's about 25 years old now. And he's talking about the Reformation principle of Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. Right? The definitive location for what we believe to be authoritative. So, he's speaking about Scripture alone and how the Reformers held to that in absolute terms. And he said, it was a vulnerable position. For one, the principle Scripture alone cannot be read out of Scripture alone, an objection which is more than a debating point. Two, this principle may easily be taken to mean or rather some ingenuity has to be deployed to show that it does not mean that nothing is essential to salvation that is not perfectly self-evident to any and every casual reader of the Bible. Appeal to Scripture alone presupposes that the meaning of Scripture is so clear on all material points that everyone will be in agreement. In practice, nothing resembling agreement appears. The Reformation, for example, emerged as a large group of vociferous groups and sects. I love that word. It's like Alka-Seltzer fizzing. <laughs> vociferous sects. So we've said we need to stay together and labor together in order to come to one mind on this and maybe focus on what, where are the points of agreement before we get to where things are really difficult. Now, on a more quotidian level, there is a church consultant who lives either in uh, Felton or Ben Lomond or Scotts Valley, I can't remember. He's famous. His name 
is speed lees. S-P-E-E-D, lees, L-E-A-S. And he, for many years, worked for the Alban Institute. And the Alban Institute is a think tank in Washington, a church think tank in uh, Washington, D.C. One of my clerical colleagues said to me one time, you know, think tanks are okay as long as they have a drain at one end. <laughs> so Speed Lees uh, was a well-known church consultant. And I took a class from him on conflict in the church about six years ago. And he said this, one of the things I took away and remembered more clearly, saw more clearly than I did before. He said, you know, I spend a lot of time as a church consultant meeting with congregations and churches who are deeply conflicted. And there are long-standing systemic difficulties in these congregations that are very, very difficult to get past. But I spend way too much time in my work dealing with congregations who are at war with one another over whether the parish hall should be blue. And sometimes it's very difficult to get, behind, get beyond that. And Paul is talking about this to the Corinthian congregation today. He's not just talking about, you know, Scripture alone or what the deep things of Christian faith and belief, as important as they are, but that in some way we need to be careful about that kind of factionalism, you know, and difficulty. Some people get addicted to this, you know, they get addicted to that kind of conflict and they want to continue it. Or they've got, as, as uh, the, the, the commentary said, they, fall, they're, they're, they have false loyalties or difficulty identifying their loyalties wrongly. Those claiming to belong to Christ are perhaps being censured because they are as divisive and exclusive in their claims as the rest. So as a pastor, what I've heard over 38 years is, all I want is things to be done correctly. That's all I want. So once you get it correctly, are you going to add any new people to the congregation? Are you going to commend your greatest place of safety and insurance in Jesus Christ? Or are you now satisfied because everybody has had the fear of God put in them because they, didn't, they fold their corporal wrong? Well, Paul isn't best pleased with that, and neither should we be. In Matthew's Gospel, today he continues his public ministry, and a number of things are going on here. First of all, this is after his baptism. We hear now Jesus moving in the Galilee, and we have the quotation about Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. And he now in this ministry is beginning to reach out and people are understanding that perhaps his message is not just for the select few, uh, but for everyone. And in the course of this, he speaks about the necessity, like his, like his associate, John the Baptist, of repentance. 
metanoiete, look at your life in a new way. Turn around and look at things from a different point of view and a different angle. We need to do that on a routine basis, not in a sort of groveling or marinating in our own sense of unworthiness by any stretch of the imagination, but figuring out the ways and means that we can live a life congruent with God's purposes for us. And what is it that we can do? And he proceeds then to call uh, some of the disciples. I believe that we will see in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is going to change slightly in his emphasis from repentance only to the presence of the kingdom of God. And in his earthly ministry, people will see two things. They will come to understand that in him, at the present moment, as they hear his words and see his works, that the kingdom of God is here. And they will also realize that the kingdom of God in future will be here in every age. So it is a present reality and a future possibility. And every time Christian people rise to the occasion, we see some small incremental advancement. We see some movement towards a healthy relationship. We see some movement towards understanding that we all need to labor to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. And that we are needed by God to fulfill that plan. It isn't going to be fulfilled somewhere else. And we're part of that. And God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And by virtue of that, it allows us to have the power to do that work because we have the light of Christ, the light to the nations. And when we were unclear and sitting in darkness or overwhelmed by adversity, the light of Christ can come to us. And this passage begins to introduce that concept into the biblical narrative and in the ministry of Jesus. So this week, give thanks for the presence of the light of Christ in your life, for that gift, and understand that as the result of it, you can be an instrument of unity in the midst of divisions, large and small, thereby making manifest the presence of Christ in the world. Amen.